0: Physics world. Hello, and welcome to the Physics World Weekly Podcast. I'm Hamish Johnston. Coming up, we'll be chatting about how physicists can help reduce the vast amounts of a potent greenhouse gas that's produced by cattle. But first, what was all that fuss about at Fermilab? Did scientists there really uncover possible evidence for a new force? I spoke with a physicist in Chicago to find out. Particle physics hit the headlines recently when the muon G-2 collaboration at Fermilab announced that its latest measurement of the muon's magnetic moment disagrees with that predicted by the standard model of particle physics. While the discrepancy is at 4.2 sigma, below the 5 sigma usually required for a discovery in particle physics, it could be pointing to the existence of a new force or other physics beyond the standard model. I'm joined down the line from Furby Lab by Sam Grant, who's a PhD student at University College London and has worked on G-2 for three years. Hi Sam, welcome to the podcast and congratulations for being part of this exciting measurement. Thank
1: you and thanks so much for having me on. It's great to talk to you.
0: So, Sam, can can you just give us an explanation of of how the experiment works, and what exactly was measured?
1: Sure. So, uh, the muon g-2 experiment involves taking a beam of things called muons, which are objects much like electrons, but around 200 times heavier, and sending them in a circle through a very large magnetic field in something uh, which we call a magnetic storage ring. In our case, this is about 7 meters in radius. As the muons make their, re- their way round and round the ring, they actually behave like little bar magnets due to a property called spin, which gives them their own little magnetic field. And so they wobble or precess in the ring's magnetic field, much like a gyroscope or a spinning top. And it's this wobble or this precession, which is what we're interested in. So how exactly do, do we measure the wobble? Well, muons are unstable particles due to being uh, so heavy. So they actually decay into electrons very rapidly in a matter of millions of a second. When this happens in our storage ring, these decay electrons fall out of orbit and into the detectors, which instrument the interior of the ring. And the decay electrons that have the highest energy actually carry information about what the muons were doing at the time of decay. Specifically, they tell us the orientation of the muon's internal magnet at the time of decay. So with this, we can actually make an extremely precise measurement of the rate at which the muons were wobbling in our magnetic field. And this tells us the strength of the interaction between the muon's internal magnet and our uh, external magnetic field generated by the storage ring. The strength of this interaction is what we call the muon magnetic dipole moment. And at Fermilab, we've made made a measurement of this, which is so precise at less than one part in a bil- in a million, sorry, that it's comparable to measuring the length of a football field to within the width of a single human hair. So it's an amazing achievement, and it's been uh, it's been great to be a part of it.
0: Wow, that, that is an amazing measurement that you've made. And of course, the really interesting thing about this is that it doesn't agree with, with the standard model prediction. Uh, what are the implications of this discrepancy?
1: The, the exact reason for why it diverges from the standard model is not known, which is the reason why it's so interesting. I can give you an idea about the mechanism which would allow such a discrepancy to manifest itself. Uh, which is called the uncertainty principle. So this is one of the many strange features of of quantum mechanics. And it actually tells us that even what we would consider to be empty space is actually seething with a sea of of so-called virtual particles, which pop in and out of existence pretty much as they please. And these virtual particles can and do get involved uh, when the muon interacts with a magnetic field and actually change the strength of the muon's magnetic field and therefore change the rate of precession. To backtrack a little bit, uh, we describe this rate of precession or the speed that the muons are wobbling with a number called the g-factor, which is the gyromagnetic ratio. So to backtrack just a little bit, we describe the rate of precession or the speed that the muons are wobbling with a number called the g-factor or the gyromagnetic ratio. So when you calculate g with no consideration of this extra C of quantum weirdness, G comes out to be exactly two. However, when you start to factor in all the other possible interactions from virt- virtual particles, you find that the G factor has increased by a small amount. So the muons are wobbling just a touch faster than before. And it's this little extra bit added onto G, which is G minus two, which is the part that we're interested in. So if your value of G minus two from theory does not match experiment, it means that there are some additional exotic interactions taking place, which cannot be a part of the standard model. Uh, it means that there is something in nature which we we don't understand. This could be a new particle. It could be a, a fifth fundamental force. Time will tell. But at the moment, it's sort of like a loose thread in the standard model that you can pull on and see what you can unravel.
0: So, so the idea is that um, th- that the muon is is somehow interacting with, with particles that we don't know about, particles that aren't described by the standard model, possibly involving forces that we don't know about um, that aren't described by the standard model.
1: That's exactly it, yeah. There, there some, there's something else that's popping out of the vacuum that's interacting with the muon and, uh, and, and changing its, its interaction with a magnetic field. So our, our measurement doesn't tell us exactly what this is. It just tells us very precisely by how much it's happening. So you could say it's it's indirect evidence of new physics at the moment.
0: And I mentioned in my introduction this this business of of five sigma that um, you know it doesn't exist in in particle physics until you hit five sigma. Is it going to be possible um, at Fermilab to to get this measurement over? the five sigma threshold, or are we going to have to wait for a new experiment to come online? And, and I think there's a new experiment coming up in Japan, isn't there?
1: Yeah, there is, there is another, uh, actually the sixth iteration of the G-2 experiment in, at J-Park in Japan, which is uh, going to be very exciting. But uh, at Fermilab, we, we will be able to push over the, the five sigma threshold. So maybe to explain what this is a little bit, the significance of this kind of measurement is governed by the number of standard deviations or sigmas which separate measurement and theory. And uh, this, d- this actually depends on the size of our experimental error bar. And at the moment, our error bar uh, arises mostly from our statistical uncertainty. But uh, as we fold more and more data into this measurement, this error bar will, will reduce. And we have a lot more data to work with. So the result that was announced last week was measured using a relatively small subset of our total data set. And we're still collecting data. So there is, there is a lot of potential to push that error bar down and, and actually surpass the five sigma result. So the five sigma threshold, which is like the gold standard for a discovery.
0: So is the experiment running at the moment? Yes,
1: yeah, so we are, the result last week was for our first period of data taking, which is called run one. We're currently about halfway through uh, collecting Run 4, and we have Run 5 planned for the future as well. It's still very active. At so the lots that.
0: and lots of data to look at. Yeah,
1: exactly. A, a phenomenal amount of data. <laughs> it's a lot of work.
0: So, Sam, I know that you're working on, on another project um, on the muon G-2 experiment, and that's trying to measure the electric dipole moment of the muon. What, what, what is the electric dipole? Dipole moment, and and why are you trying to measure it?
1: So uh, the electric dipole moment measurement is the other important bit of physics that comes out of g minus two. That much like the the magnetic dipole moment, it's like a very small uh, electric dipole field that the muon possesses intrinsically. The, the standard model actually predicts that the EDM, so called EDM, would be extremely small. There are some. There are actually some more exotic models of physics that allow for an EDM which is actually within reach of our experiment. And we, it just so happens that the G-2 experiment has the capability to set, uh, to make a world leading measurement of the EDM alongside the uh, magnetic dipole. It's a really interesting thing to be working on. And in addition, in addition to uh, potentially uh, accessing more exotic models of physics, if we were to discover a non-zero EDM, this would provide evidence of CP violation in uh, the lepton sector or CP violation for things like electrons, muons, and another thing called a tau. Why is this interesting? Well, we know that we live in a a universe which is, is dominated by matter, but CP symmetry predicts that matter and antimatter are essentially mirror images of each other. And if this is really completely true, then we would just live in a universe made out of photons uh, we wouldn't have any matter to speak of, really. So there must be significant amounts of CP violation, and discovering an EDM for, for the muon would be a very helpful extra source of CP violation in the standard model.
0: And, and how is that going? How's that measurement coming along? Are you? Um, I'm guessing you, you're not up to 4.2 sigma, are you? Like uh, no, <laughs> like no. A yeah, it's, it's, is it's a, going. Is it a yeah. hard measurement to make?
1: It is a difficult measurement. Um, it's going. It's still in progress, but, but but yeah, stay tuned for that. It's it's coming. Okay. <laughs> it's coming. And
0: and what's, what's it like as a as a PhD student working on a on a large project? Um, you know, you've you, you've moved yourself from England to um, to Chicago to work on this. You're, you're part of a big team. Um, is that something that you enjoy? Is it is it how you expected when you when you signed up in 2018? Yeah, it's
1: great. And actually, as far as high energy physics goes, the G-2 experiment is not so large, at least not compared to some of the experiments uh, at the Large Hadron Collider, where they, have, they might have like, many thousands of collaborators. So we have between 150 to 200 collaborators. Um, and I think this is a, a good number. Well, first of all, it's, it's a complicated experiment. So I think if we had any fewer people, then we might struggle to get everything done. But it's still few enough that you could know everyone on a first name basis, and there's plenty of room for a PhD student like me to try and make an impact. So I, I think it's a fa- I think it's fantastic. I should say as well, like everyone on the experiment um, is great. They're all incredibly supportive of each other, and there's so much passion and talent for the physics that we're doing. So I think it's a great place to be as a student.
0: And do you, um, I've often mm. wondered, uh, you know, do, do you have any sort of hands-on interaction with the experiment i mean would you go in with a, a voltmeter and an oscilloscope and adjust a level on something is, is is that something that a that a phd student would do or is that all left to you know to technicians uh, to t- technical people
1: um yeah that is something that a student would do um so i actually joined i joined the experiment in 2018 where uh So the experiment was already built when I turned up and it it was mostly the work to do was like running the experiment, maintaining things that broke and uh, doing data analysis. So in terms of hands-on stuff, I would do, I mean, I've done a lot of hours of of, uh, sitting in the control room, making sure everything's running, fixing things when they break. I'd say that there is a decent amount of of, uh, hands-on stuff, although obviously less so with uh, the pandemic. But. It's uh, there's a good amount of hands-on stuff.
0: And what was it like when uh, you know when your paper was published and and this hit the headlines and people around the world were were talking about um, you know a new force that might have been discovered at, at Fermilab? Were you were you surprised by all the the attention um, you know in the media?
1: Yeah, I, I was surprised by the media reaction. It's very surreal. Um, it's, it's very surreal to be talking to you, to be honest. <laughs> Um, So I I was expecting a big reaction from the physics community, but I was really blown away by the amount of interest uh, from the media and the general public. First of all, it was nice to see that, you know, so many of my friends on G-2 have worked so hard for like so many years. In some cases, well, they've worked for decades on this. So it's great to see that they're receiving some recognition for their work. But also I thought that it was, I found it really encouraging that so many like so many non-scientists have shown that they're so willing to engage with this kind of stuff, even though it can seem a little bit cryptic sometimes. It made me feel very optimistic. And I, I hope that it's given people a little bit of inspiration in these times. It's been it's been amazing to see.
0: Definitely. And, and 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 thanks, Sam. Thanks for being on the podcast. And 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 best of luck with finishing your PhD and 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 also maybe even hitting that that five sigma before
1: you. <laughs> yeah, night. thanks a lot. <laughs> try my best. Thank you.
0: You can read more about the latest muon g-2 result on the Physics World website. Just look for the headline, the muon's theory-defying magnetism is confirmed by a new experiment. Cutting methane production from livestock is an important way that we can reduce greenhouse gas emissions. Physicists are playing a role by developing ways to measure emissions from cattle. As Physics World's Laura Hiscott discovers in this interview with a science writer who has investigated the battle against bovine belching.
2: I'm joined down the line from Bristol by Michael Allen, who has written the feature article Battling Bovine Belching, measuring methane emissions from cows. Hi, Michael. Welcome to the podcast.
3: Hi, Laura. Thanks for having me.
2: So the cover of our magazine this month is a herd of cows in a grassy field, and we all know that cows eat grass. I was wondering, is there anything else that cows eat?
3: I mean, I think to be honest, they can eat most things. I think they can they can eat things like soy and um, corn stuff like that but that's not really their kind of ecological niche their niche is eating these very cellulose rich plant materials like grass that most other animals can't really digest but so that's mainly what they'll eat grass straw hay things like that but they will eat yeah other vegetation and plant material if they if they're fed it it just doesn't really they're just set up to generate energy from these materials that most other animals can't digest
2: i see is it something to do with the cellulose that produces the methane
3: exactly the cellulose is really very indigestible i think if you tried to eat it for example you'd probably just get a bad stomach (laughs) ache and not really get much benefit from it so the cows have this rumen it's like a chamber of their stomach as an anaerobic area And it's basically fermented in there by various microorganisms, including bacteria, mainly bacteria, that break down the kind of hard cellulose materials in plants. That's the kind of main structural fibres in plants. And as they do this, they generate a lot of hydrogen. And then another class of microorganisms, which hopefully I'm pronouncing this right, called acaraea. They're a very kind of old group of organisms that used to be classed as bacteria, but are now something different. And they basically feed off the hydrogen. And as a byproduct of that, they produce lots of methane. And then that builds up in the cow's rumen and they burp it out.
2: Ah, so why is it a problem that the cows are burping out methane?
3: Well, they produce a lot of it. I mean, I think about 95% of their methane production is produced through burping, the rest comes out the other end. And really, Methane is a very potent greenhouse gas. It doesn't last very long in the atmosphere, kind of 10, 20 years, but it has a much greater kind of global warming potential than carbon dioxide. So whilst long-term carbon dioxide is very important because it persists for hundreds of years, methane is seen by some as quite a good short-term thing to focus on. While we are addressing the long-term issue of carbon dioxide, carbon dioxide reduction essentially will take a long time before we start to see the impact because we have carbon dioxide in the atmosphere from the turn of the last century, for example, whereas methane will disappear in 10, 20 years. But why it's there, it has 80 times more kind of heat-trapping potential than carbon dioxide.
2: Wow, that's a really high percentage.
3: Exactly. So it's seen as, yeah, get rid of it now whilst we're dealing with the carbon dioxide. So it could
2: sort of buy us time to reduce the carbon dioxide sources.
3: I think that's the idea, (laughs) yes. But obviously, it's not that long. If we stop methane production now and just didn't produce any more, in 10, 20 years, all that human-produced methane would kind of be gone. Then we'd be back to the carbon dioxide problem. So it's not a long-term solution, but it is a possible solution for Uh now and obviously going forwards it's not a bad idea to keep it low
2: so since this is the physics world podcast i'm interested to know how physicists are helping to tackle this issue
3: well i guess the main point really is how do you make cows produce less methane and then and where the physicists come in is how do you measure how much methane they're
2: producing right
3: so that's, that's where the physics comes in, really. It's the measuring of the methane production to see if the techniques you are using to cut it down are working or not. Ah,
2: so how do physicists help to measure the methane emissions? Well,
3: I mean, ma- mainly, like measuring most gases, they use spectroscopy-type instruments, so lasers that measure the molecules in the gases that come out of the cows. But the traditional ways of doing this are quite labour-intensive, They'll use handheld devices that they can point at a cow's nostrils. um, They put them in things called respiration chambers, so the cow will sit in there, well, it can be for a few hours, even a few days, and they measure the air that comes in and out but these really focus very much on the individual animal. There are devices which I think are called green feed. It's like a trough that has spectroscopy devices in the in the bottom of it. You put food in it, the cow goes in, and while it's eating, it breathes out, it burps, and you're measuring the production. You're measuring the methane output. But again, you're focusing very much on individual animals. And you so you can imagine trying to measure and get a very good figure for every single animal in your entire herd is going to take a lot of time and a lot of man hours and people so what people are looking at is are there ways to measure this on a larger scale so some of the people i talked to have been using things like drones and they use these for measuring methane production from places like cities fracking sites um or natural kind of methane seeps and they've also just been experimenting about whether or not they can use them to measure it, measure them from cows. And it's been, it works particularly well when the cows are being milked or they're being fed inside because you kind of create like a box, the barn that the cows are in, and you can kind of focus your attention on the gas that is coming out of that. You fly the drone downwind and it measures the kind of differences and changes in the methane flux and some very clever kind of maths and modelling to give you an idea of the overall production from the herd but other people are using various laser-based devices that will scan the field and they basically measure the methane that is kind of coming up off of the field off the ground and there's also people using kind of again laser-based dual frequency combs and they will put one on one side of the field and one on the other and the idea I guess is that you would set it up Roughly with the prevailing wind direction. So you measure the methane that is flowing in from one end and then the methane that's flowing out to the other side. And that gives you an idea of how much the cows are producing. So the idea really is to get these kind of whole herd measurements. But it's also kind of complicated because that's good in some scenarios. But in other cases, you might want to know. What very specific cows are doing, which is where the older techniques come in.
2: Wow! So there are lots of different methods with different advantages. Then,
3: exactly. Yes, I mean, I think when it comes to breeding, for example, you want to be able to check individual cows and you want to see, well, this cow was produced by you know these two parents, and what effect does that have on its methane production? But when it, but I think the idea of measuring the whole herd really comes down to probably slightly more long-term thinking of monitoring whole herds further down the line once you've perhaps had a larger breeding program, or just to see what farms are doing and how they are achieving methane reduction, if it is working or not. At the moment, they tend to measure a small number of cows and then create models that can be applied to the whole herd. But as often is the case these things, does that model work? that's kind of the question and these whole herd methods can kind of help analyze these models and kind of check that they do work properly.
2: So speaking of reducing the methane emissions that um, we measure via these different methods, are there any ongoing research projects into various methods of reducing methane emissions?
3: Yeah, so there seems to be two big ways to look at that one is breeding and the other is essentially food so what the cows eat and breeding is really there are certain types of it's basically you're trying to maximize the amount of protein produced by the cow so the milk or meat per kilogram of food so the more protein it produces the more efficient it is basically and there are various different breeds of cows which are renowned for being particularly good at producing meat or particularly good at producing milk so it's about breeding those different varieties to create a super efficient cow for the environment where you are but also like with us cows have a kind of microbiome that seems to be very specific to individual cows so one person I spoke to explained to me that if they kind of clean out the rumen or remove the the microfauna there and put the microfauna from another cow in, in three, four, five weeks, the cow will go back to having the same microfauna that it had previously. So there's something in the cow's genetics that kind of helps maintain a very specific microfauna in its rumen. So there's an element of breeding as well to produce cows that i guess what they're trying to do is produce cows that that balance this kind of fermentation with the level of methane production wow um it is it's a it's a little complicated <laughs> yeah. but um but yeah it's a mixture of kind of breeds that are known to be very efficient and then also specific animals that for some reason have a microfauna that reduces their methane production in some way
2: that's really interesting that they go back within just a few weeks to their initial uh, microbiome.
3: Yeah, apparently it reverts quite quickly, and so you can't really change the microbiome of a particular cow.
2: And aside from the microbiome of the cow, the other component of the production of methane is uh, the food that they eat. So. Are there any Is there any research around the food, changing the food that the cows eat and how that might change methane production?
3: Yes. Yeah, so again, as with a lot of these things, it's quite complicated. You can, as I said earlier, feed cows things like corn that will produce less methane because they don't need to ferment it in the same way. But then growing these crops specifically for animal feed, as we know, has its own environmental issues and kind of carbon costs turning farmland or non-farmland over to kind of feed production isn't necessarily the best way to go about it and you're also shifting away from this good niche that the cows have which is using up kind of grassland but also kind of waste farming material they can eat so So that's one way to do it, but it's not considered by some to be hugely sensible because of the carbon costs that are created elsewhere. So the other thing that people are looking at is essentially feed additives. So there's been a lot of research by various groups into seaweed, which seems to have some kind of components that essentially stop the microorganisms that convert the hydrogen to methane from working properly. So they break down this kind of methogenesis and they interrupt various enzymes that these microorganisms use, and essentially they don't really work properly. So they just produce less methane, and instead the cow basically ends up with an excess of hydrogen that it burps out instead. And there's been some incredible results of this. There was a paper out uh, last month in Plus One, which found using red seaweed that you could get around an eighty percent reduction in methane production. Wow. And basically, all they do is they just drop, they just freeze dry the seaweed, and it, and then kind of break it up, and they just sprinkle it on the in with the feed. So the cows aren't really eat. Well, they are eating it, but it's not really kind of a food for them. It's just an additive that's added to their normal feed.
2: Wow, that's a massive reduction, eighty percent. Are there any disadvantages at all to these supplements, and uh, any reasons why? They aren't being used by everyone.
3: Yeah, so as well as seaweed, there are a few other additives. There's a Swiss company which has been using a a garlic-based additive, and they claim around about a 40% reduction in methane. And I'm not really sure about disadvantages. I don't think there are any that have been found from the point of the cow. But with all these things, there's the question about how you scale this up. Growing garlic perhaps isn't so difficult, but farming enough... enough seaweed to feed to add to the feed of all the cows in the world probably presents some logistical challenges yes
2: and are they expensive at all
3: i mean at the moment i think the researchers are doing it just go to the beach or send someone else down to the beach to kind of collect the seaweeds. Oh, wow. they're not doing it on a particularly huge you know they're not doing it on a particularly large scale they're probably growing the seaweed perhaps in their labs as well to get it but this isn't I don't think this is something that has been done at particularly large scale yet. I don't think there are any companies that are doing uh-huh. it. So I guess it's hard to know about the cost, really. But of course, there is a cost. And that's part of the issue. You know, as we know, dairy farmers particularly very much struggle with their kind of bottom line and their profits. So anything that makes their, the production of their milk more expensive is going to be difficult for them.
2: As um, cows are not the only ruminants, have has there been any research on whether these seaweed supplements could work for other ruminants like sheep and goats?
3: Yeah, so they've checked this in uh, in beef cattle and milk cattle, and there has also been some work on sheep and other ruminants like goats, and yet yeah, the, the effects are roughly similar across the board. Their, their microfauna kind of work in the same way, so it has roughly the same effect. But really the cows are the big issue here. I don't think there's been a huge amount of focus on how well it would work in sheep, just because they don't produce anywhere near as much methane as cattle.
2: That sounds like really promising research then.
3: Yeah, I think so, yeah. I think just the big question is how to scale it up, how to produce enough seaweed to do it, or I guess perhaps artificially produce the compounds in the seaweed that, that are having this effect.
2: So Michael, you've recently written an article for us about how fungus rotted wood has been used to generate electricity. Can you tell us a bit about that?
3: Yeah, so this is looking at how you can amplify the piezoelectric effect in wood to make it more applicable. Um, So it's been known for a while that wood can produce electricity under mechanical stress, but it's not a particularly practical material for this. The effect isn't that strong and wood itself isn't particularly flexible or elastic. So it's hard to stress it, and it's hard to stress it in a way that then allows it to return to its original form, to not break or snap. So people have been looking for a while at at ways to improve this, particularly because wood is used a lot in various kind of building materials. So there's various applications where the effect could be harnessed and the main thing that's been looked at is how to remove the lignin from the wood so this is one of the main structural components of wood besides cellulose and people have found that if they use aggressive acids to dissolve the lignin they're left with a cellulistic framework that is much more flexible and elastic than the original wood so it can be flexed and bent and squashed to produce electricity but The previous work has used very aggressive chemicals for this, like I said. So the latest work I talked about was looking at uh, more natural and environmentally friendly ways to do this. So they experimented with wood rot fungus and they found that essentially it has the same effect as the acid. If you leave the wood sat sat infected with this fungus for around 10 weeks or so, it dissolves the lignin but leaves the cellulose intact. So again, you're left with this kind of more flexible squidgy material.
2: Wow. What applications might there be for fungus-rotted wood that can generate electricity?
3: Well, there's a few different things that people have looked at. People have looked a bit at using it to power wearable technologies, so creating very thin slices of the material that you could wear on your skin. And as you move and your skin flexes and shifts, it generates electricity that could power some kind of sensor i guess for biomedical type applications things like that but i think what people are really interested in is its potential as a piezoelectric building material so wooden floors are very common and the idea is that in buildings you could have wooden floors that as you walk across them and apply that mechanical stress and generate electricity you could capture that electricity you could store it and use it to power the building and this would be particularly useful in large public spaces large buildings that have a lot of footfall and yet people believe that it could be possible to use some kind of piece of electric flooring material like wood to capture that energy as an alternative to things like solar panels and other way and, and other things that are used to cut for buildings to generate their own their own energy
2: that sounds really futuristic
3: yeah they're not that close to being able to do that yet Um, In the latest work they looked at, they were using small kind of one and a half centimeter blocks of wood that they could squeeze to turn on and off LEDs, power small kind of liquid crystal displays, things like that. Um, So, yeah, I think we're a reasonable way off from wooden floors that can generate their own electricity. That work also focused on kind of balsa wood, which isn't a hugely common building material, but works well for this because of its um, structural properties. So now the researchers are moving on to investigate how well it would work in other more commonly used woods, such as pine.
2: Thank you for telling us about that. You can read more about this on the Physics World website. Just look for the headline Fungus Turns Wood Piezoelectric, allowing it to power LEDs. Look out for Michael's article about methane detection in the features section of the Physics World website. Thanks for being on the podcast, Michael.
3: That's okay, Laura. Thanks for having me.
0: I'm afraid that's all the time we have for this week's podcast. Thanks to Sam Grant, Michael Allen, and Laura Hiscott for joining me today. And as always, a special thanks to our producer, Callum Jelf. Please join us again next week. But in the meantime, if you fancy watching a video about how scientists are tackling methane emissions from cattle, check out Scientists Refuse to be Cowed by the Livestock Methane Problem. I know it's a cheesy headline, but it's a really interesting video, and you can find it in the video section of the Physics World website.